You are listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here with Paul, and uh, we're here to have another little conversation, just chatting like we do. And uh, Paul is, again, he is zooming in from Waco, the uh, the great South, the great Texas rancher that Paul has become. Do you He's know what actually, Waco's famous for? What? Like Wait, the, say the hi to everybody. Cult? No, no. Say Hello. hi to everybody, Paul. Say Hello. hi, everyone. Say hi, everyone. Uh, hi, everyone. Oh, you're so awkward. This is why <laughs> this is why we don't bring you places. All right, what tell me about this Waco. This is such a weird intro. And we're both zooming in technically. 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 Yeah. Okay, wait. Go ahead. What about Waco? Do you know about the famous like nineties cult? There was a cult oh, like right the, outside. Yeah. The, David the, Koresh. The, yeah, it was called the uh what was the it called? Branch it Davidians. Called? Yeah. 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 The branch was, of David. <laughs> I always think about Waco's the old testament. Claim to fame. Yeah. What was the deal with them? They were like a weird cult. It was like a, I think it was like a sex polygamy cult. It's usually, right the, the, what other kind of cults are? There's no like, yeah. like math cult. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we, we just like do equations or something like, you know, if you're going to start a cult. There's always anyway. sexual stuff involved. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Does yeah. that mean that Christianity can't be a cult by definition? Yes. There you go. Because no one has sex. <laughs> what? <laughs> what kind of... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know uh, what kind of Chris. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> Christianity would die out quickly if that never happened. You should see how flustered Brian looks right now. I love this. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, this is great. Be this is a great segue multiply. to our uh, <laughs> to our. Topic. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't expect us <laughs> to get get to that so soon. No, but, no. no. Uh, what, what were you going to say? Well, I, I actually was curious about what kind of cult you would start if you could start one. Hmm. Probably the cult that uh, my life is already a part of. That's, right? What's like, hilarious <laughs> is people can't see the video feed of this, but uh, Paul's actually in like a silk robe with like incense around him, and uh, he has all these people this behind is like him. The second time you've mentioned me in a robe, like a bathrobe. <laughs> 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 but I don't know. That just Why sounds like a cult leader. I don't know, or like a to- what, what? I mean, what do cult leaders wear? Not bathrobes. I don't know. I just picture Whatever. like overalls. I picture like farmer getup. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> this is on your homestead. You just you would be the. I mean, the most bizarre. It's like 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 people. Your your acolytes are going and finding people, and they're like, "Come meet our leader." And then you're just there. You got this like straw hat. You got overalls. You know, just like sitting out in the in the field and and philosophizing, and I mean, well, I think philosophers can make the best cult leaders because you sound you've thought about a lot of stuff. You sound very deep, you're usually very articulate, and that's oh, how thank you, can you swindle people out of money. Yeah, philosophers don't usually end up getting rich, though. If you go into philosophy, you're usually like a, the equivalent of a starving artist, but academic wise. Well, this could be your second career starting a cult. I feel like we've talked about you starting a cult before on this podcast, actually. Something it sounds very, like something something very cultish. About not something you. I would do, but it sounds like something people would think I might do. That's true. That's true. I don't true. know what that says about me. Hmm. It's the beard. It's a very cult-like beard. It's a very sexy beard. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. You can't say those words on a Christian podcast. Actually, we are slightly irreverent, right? Historically informed. Yeah, that's right. Really, the historically the the historically informed is like hit or miss, but the slightly irreverent is. Uh, is pretty. Are you raising your hand on the Zoom call? What are you doing? What are you talking about? Your little hand keeps raising. Anyway, never oh, mind. It's not what me. were you going to say? Go ahead. I was going to say we're always historically informed, even if we don't explicitly talk about the history. 
It's just always there in the background. Yeah. That's how informed we are. We don't even have to let you, you don't even know how informed we are because we're so. It's like, it's like when you have that vegan friend who like every opportunity they get, they tell you that they're vegan. We don't have to do that with our historical informedness. Yeah. I, I saw something about that where it was like, someone's like, if, if you don't know who the vegans are, don't worry, they'll tell you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like CrossFit people or something. Yep. It's but. the same, it's the same group of, it's the same cross section of the population, the section we should get rid of. I mean, not or listen to. Not listen recruit to. into your cult. That's right. My but weird, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's an interesting tidbit that you, that's, uh, you're, you're in the, you're in the birthplace of a notorious cult. I mean, they got like killed, right? They were like, there's like a showdown at the. Yeah. There was a famous police shootout. Why were they firing bullets at each other? I think like the cops showed up and they were resisting. I don't know. I should read more into this to figure out <laughs> like the Why would they sh- like is it illegal to have a cult? Uh I I I am actually not sure. I don't know. It's not that it was illegal you to have a figure cult. Out it's the, that, yeah. It's it's that what they were doing or something or I mean maybe, maybe there was like shady stuff going on and so cops tried to break onto the estate and bullets were exchanged and you need to figure out the legal ramifications before you start a because you don't want to like get screwed on taxes and stuff like that, you know. That's true. Although I'm just, sure that that's like very low on their list of priorities. Like <laughs> your tax status as a cult when you're already doing like horrible things to people. Well, that's enough of a rabbit trail. I, I don't even know how we got on that. But uh, speaking about, you talked about uh, polygamy and and all kinds of sexual deviance. Uh, <laughs> you were. Talking, and we, we've actually had a lot of conversations about this. And actually, back when you were here in Tallahassee, you did a, uh, a talk on, uh, you know, the, the meaning of sex and all these types oh, of yeah. things. And, and as a single guy, it's pretty bold. Uh, but man, that was packed. There were so many people there. Uh, I feel like those are the best sex talks because they're impartial. Like, who do you want to tell you about the ethics what? of something? <laughs> if not someone who's not enjoying the fruits of that's right it was awkward when you got up and you're like you guys me being an asexual person i literally have no you have no gender actually that's what made you totally impartial asexual is not the word you want to use there probably not asexual is like when you reproduce through yourself (laughs) through through budding yeah you're just like through budding (laughs) (laughs) if you're like everyone this is going to really freak you out and then like Another ball starts growing like, out of your neck, just like like emerging from your body and being like, look, this is, wow. That's a horrible mental image. You're welcome, now, guys. Would that be uh, getting an end without an act? You know what I'm saying? Would that, that would be a be, violation of natural law? That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. there. Yeah. Th- yeah. I'm sure that's an act in and of itself. Probably. Mm. Probably. Wow. Anyway. So, but you wanted to talk about hookup culture. And how to really succeed at it, uh, based upon your <laughs> fast experience. No, you want to talk about some of the moral implications of it and some insights you had about. It. And I thought, well, you know what? That's always a great conversation, and we, we've we've talked informally about it. But I think we wouldn't have a podcast unless we thought that the world should hear all the weird things that appear in your brain. So I just we're going like to just inflicting my that. opinions on the world. This is, this is why I decided to become a philosopher. In, inflicting is a good yes. way to put it. So, all right. So hookup culture. When we talk, like when, when I say that or when you 
hear people talk about that, what comes to your mind? Uh, the idea that you can have sex just as, as easy as you would shaking someone's hand. This idea that you can like connect with someone sexually and all it is is just a sexual encounter with nothing deep, nothing mean, like there's no meaning to it. And it's, it's the one thing that I think for all of the progress that we've made, for all of the stuff that liberals talk about as being important and like we should not objectify women and all this sort of stuff, it's like the massive blind spot in culture's eye. We just don't see like, how have we like not grasped that this is the epitome of objectifying other human beings? You know, like it blows my mind that we still think hooking up is, oh yeah, it's, it's safe. It's respecting another person. Like you're not doing anything wrong. When literally all that a hookup is, is you're just saying your body is sufficiently hot and I want to have sex with you. And I don't want anything deeper, no meaning, no relationship from this at all. Like all the only box that you've checked is your body is sufficiently hot. That is literally the definition of re reducing a person to an object. It's insane. I do think that people today though would say, as long as there's consent, I, I guess you, are you still being objectified if you consent to this even if it's a transaction if you i think consent is the big thing as long as the other person's like i'm cool with this it's no longer dehumanizing i i mean you can still consent to someone using you as an object like a lot of feminists for example think that the porn industry is objectifying women right like it's both objectifying the people in the industry but it's also objectifying women in general by allowing men to consume women in this way. And so even though women in the porn industry have quote unquote consented to doing this sort of stuff, like that itself isn't enough to not objectify those individuals, right? Like I, yeah, it, it, it can be, it could be consenting and still a kind of, I wouldn't go so far as say dehumanizing, but it's definitely, you're treating someone like an object when you're doing that. Like you're both saying, yeah, we, we agree to like, reap the pleasure from this interaction, sure. Um, but it's still a kind of like objectification. Like what it is to respect someone as a person is to, is to see them with all of their particularities, right? Like when you hook up with someone, there's a kind of indifference to the personhood of the person. You don't actually care that this is a particular person with a history and a name and a story. Like all, like the hookup is just, you check this box that your body is sufficiently hot. And so if, you're not, you're not a person in my mind. What if you're somebody says, but you can have, you know, like the hookup culture, as long as there's, you know, a mutual respect, uh, you know, you're not just, you're, you're, you're treating them nicely. You're speaking to them nicely. You know, you, you don't, um, ghost them, you know, what, I don't know, whatever it would be, um, because I think people would say, okay, I even, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think even you see in movies, it's like there's a one night stand, the guy doesn't call, the girl feels terrible. And we all as an audience, no matter what religion, you're just like, oh, that's not an, that's not good. That's not cool. Yeah. You know? Um, but then the, it's like the answer is, well, he shouldn't have just done that. He should have, you know, had breakfast with her or something or whatever. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's some kind of like, it's all about, uh, it's not really about the act in itself. It's how it's carried out that makes it wrong. Does that make sense? I mean, the fact that there is, the fact that the, the encounter is not situated in a relationship, like that itself keys you into, this is, this is an instance of objectification. Like 
All, all I'm saying is it's not, I'm not saying that it's, it's not valid consent. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying two people in this moment have agreed that, hey, I'm going to use you as an object and you're going to use me as an object. And, and even if they agree on it, it's still wrong. It's still objectification. Yeah. Right. It's still like the point of like having sex in the context of a relationship is where you're not just treating the person like they're checking a box, right? You are, this, this activity belongs to a larger narrative, to a larger relationship. Mm. And I mean, this is why to like, to step into the more Christian way of viewing things here, like marriage is supposed to be lifelong, permanent as much as it can be. And so sex takes place inside that. And so if you get married and, you know, your spouse gets into a horrible car accident, they're disfigured, they look terrible, right? Like you can't just leave. You can't just say, oh, well, you're not sufficiently hot now, right? Like that sort of uh, covenant that you've made with that person, that commitment makes it now permissible for you to have sex in a way that's not objectifying this person because you're there. Like you're, you're like, you're going to have sex. You're going to wake up the next morning. Like you're going to be there. So it's it, the option to just use the person is not um, not as pronounced in that kind of relationship. Whereas in a hookup, like all you're saying is, yeah, you you tick this box for me, and you're gonna like give me this pleasure, this experience, and that's that's all that's all I need, right? So it's a kind of like undermining of of a personhood, a person's personhood. So you're saying this particularly with a hookup culture, but. Would you say it's a similar objectification if somebody's in a five-year relationship with somebody, but they're not married, but they're having sex with each other? I think there's there's a still a narrative, there's still a story, there's a relationship. Maybe they even say we're going to get married someday. Wouldn't that fit yeah. the criteria for not being uh, objectifying? Yeah. So here, here I'm just spitballing. I, I maybe we should think of this in, uh, like on a on a sliding scale, and there's worse ways, and there's. I think hookup is like the paradigmatic example of the objectification because there you're just saying like, all, all, all I want to do is use you for this purpose. Like I am not, there's nothing about your personhood that's relevant to this interaction. It's just the fact that your body can achieve in me this state, this experience that I want. And so I'm going to use your body to get that. Um, to the extent that you're like willing to engage in relationship outside of that, Maybe that like lessens some of the objectification. Maybe that makes objectification less bad. I don't know. I don't have like a well worked out theory, but I think like to the extent that there's commitment, inversely, like there's less objectification going on. And so on the like totally other end, marriage is the exact opposite of a hookup, right? That's where you get the the like the parameters and the constraints where you can have sex and it's not necessarily an objectification. It's the best way to avoid the objectification, right? Um, because there you're marrying a particular person with all of the baggage that comes with that. And you are committing that even if stuff goes terribly wrong, I'm going to be here. And so, I mean, very famously, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, thought you need marriage. You need an unconditional commitment with the other person to make a sexual encounter not objectifying. So I, I think that there's something right about that. I don't know if it's like a super compelling knockdown argument, but something about unconditional commitment to a person, like commitment elevates a sexual encounter or potentially elevates a sexual encounter 
from mere using someone's body to something more because it involves respecting them with their particularities as a person. There's something too about you objectify somebody else because you want them to be a source of pleasure for you, mm. which I don't know. I don't know if that's intrinsically bad, but there, there's a sense in which even when you're dating for a long time, you haven't made a promise. I mean, you could say like, well, it's just a piece of paper. We know, but it's like, well, then if it's just a piece of paper, just do it. And yeah. but, but I think even people who say that, no, no, it would be a ne another step of commitment. Like it would be extra right. bad if we were married and we ended this. Divorce is different than a breakup. I think most people today realize it. In fact, that's mm. probably why most people don't get married. Right. Right. They, because they, precisely because they view it as way different than a breakup. Yeah. And so even then it's like, until you're willing to say, I'm going to bind my life to you in an official way, in a way that before God, um, you're, you're still kind of the, the other person's still in this probationary period. Mm. You yeah, know what I mean? There's still like an escape clause. Right. There's like, still there's an escape clause. Mm -hmm. Right. And if sex is about union, you're trying to, it, it, that, that's, you're, you're saying two different types of things. Right. Yeah. You know, but maybe we get back to hookup culture. I think maybe that's, it's a longer conversation about long-term relationships or, or things like that. Um, and I guess you could say provisionally it's, you know, if you could pick between the two, you'd want people to generally have longer term relationships rather than this hookup culture, but maybe they yeah. flow together. <clears throat> but what do you think is the, because I think in, in Christian circles, it's like, all right, hookup culture, bad, 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 because mm -hmm. sex outside of marriage, all that stuff. But there's something a little deeper than that about how right. we view one another in, in person and all that stuff. So what, what what's underpinning all of this from your Yeah, I'm, I'm not even view. going the, the Christian sexual ethic route. Yeah, I'm just saying like, I think these are assumptions and premises that we can all agree on. Like there's, I'm not even saying don't have premarital sex, right? I'm, I'm, like there's something peculiar and something like uniquely wrong yeah. in a hookup where it's just like a transaction and you're saying to someone for this one night, I just want to use your body to get this experience. And that is just for a culture that is already so repulsed by objectification with all the sort of feminist critiques out there against pornography, against like putting up this like stale view of what a woman should be like we're all very sensitive to that kind of critique and yet it just we haven't made the next step to connect hookup culture why, to that critique like why is that are there any are there any really feminist scholars that are against hookup culture i'm sure there's oh, some yeah, right? yeah i mean louise perry she's she writes about this and she talks about how like hookup culture also asymmetrically favors men <laughs> basically so a lot of feminists who are writing about this now say like how did we how did we basically get the wool pulled over our eyes like in the 60s? Like uh, sex without commitment. Yes, sure. Like there are, there are men and women who enjoy that, but it definitely like asymmetrically prefers men. Why because, is that? Because men, that's, I mean, when you look at like the, the Tinder uh, stats, which are always like horrifying, uh, guys on Tinder will swipe on 80 to 90% of all the women they see, <laughs> whereas women swipe on 10 to 20% of the men. So women are looking for something a little bit more than just um, a hookup, or just a, a fling, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can read you can read pieces making these feminist critiques, like uh, while sex is enjoyable, right? Like women tend to prefer something else, and that's not that's not like a misogynistic way of looking at sex. That's taking seriously like what feminist writers are saying about sex. And so 
it's not it's not controversial. Like there, there's a fact of like a, a guy is more likely able to have a sexual encounter and not let it affect him in the same kinds of ways and come in with the same kinds of expectations and emotional connection and, and wanting something more than a woman would. So 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 if you're incentivizing hookup culture, you're in essentially incentivizing this asymmetrical preference for like guys and the desires and the kinds of interactions they want, not the kinds of interactions that women typically want. But the percentage you, you just gave sounds like it actually favors the women because the women are being more picky and the men are swiping, you know, like crazy. Yeah. And, and it's funny that like only only 20% of the guys on Tinder are like actually getting any action at all. And so really the only people who are, who are getting what they want are like the top 20% of guys on Tinder. Um most, most of the girls who are using Tinder are using it because they want something more like a long-term relationship. And so in a single afternoon, she might have 10 or you know 20 guys who are matching with her, but most of those guys just want to use her for sex, right? And she is not necessarily looking for that. And so you get this asymmetrical preference for one, like you get an asymmetrical preference for the male's um, desires rather than the female's desires. Sure, but in terms of like the actual people on Tinder, it seems like these guys aren't getting what they want, at least the vast majority because- Right, the majority right? aren't, yeah. But Yeah, so like is the, it really favoring guys all guys? It's, it's just not. favoring a certain- Yeah, and and you could even like push back even more, like it's favoring some of those guys in this like very superficial sense, but no one actually wins out because like the way, like engaging in this kind of behavior is terrible for everyone long-term. Hmm. It just makes you into a worse person. It, it, it cultivates the horrible, like superficial part of who you are. And like, no one wins out in hookup culture, right? Like some, some people are able to reap the immediate benefits, but it's just not, it's not good societally. It's not good pragmatically. It's ethically dubious. It's just like, how have we gone this long and like not, uh, not seeing this. And, and to be fair, like it is, it's something that people are becoming a little more sensitive to, but, um, it's sort of the last, the last, uh, trolley on the train. I don't know what that, that's stupid. That's not a real metaphor. It's the last piece of the puzzle that people are now beginning to connect. The last trolley on the train. <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, I think Alistair Roberts said this where he, he, he said he was talking about, uh, chastity before marriage using very, Chastity before I, I, marriage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and he said that, because I think sometimes in the evangelical world, it's like, don't have sex till you're married. Because then when it happens, it's like the <laughs> heaven's gates open. And it's just like, this the, the, weird the more, I don't know, it's my, it's my evangelical pastor voice, right? And uh, what, 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 what if God, what, what if God wants, wants you? Anyway, anyway, so, but there's this like idea of, you know, like it's it's like incentivizing like like you stay chased for this long and that like puts it away in like a Roth IRA. So then when you cash it out, it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, something like that. But fireworks and yeah. And um but it's 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 sort of like it's almost using the same carnal like <laughs> mentality. Yeah. And he said he's like, I there's like weird promises people make, you know, like pastors being like, Oh, we waited and oh my gosh, you know, like it's just amazing, you know, stuff. And it's just like weird. It's like, why, why are you talking like that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but he said, one of the things it is, is it trains you in chastity 
in marriage in the sense of like, if you have the self-control to remain chaste outside of marriage, you'll have it in marriage, meaning not wandering from your spouse yeah. and being disciplined in not being caught up in things like pornography or being mm-hmm. you know, caught up in lust because you've trained yourself. And so he's like, that's the idea. Not that you're, it's like this exchange where you do this and then God rewards you with an amazing marriage and all the sex you could want, all whatever. Yeah. Um, but rather it's, it's a character shaping thing of like, I mean, I don't, maybe this is a weird analogy, but it's like, if you manage your money well, you know, before marriage, it helps in your marriage. And yeah, absolutely. when you think about it as, as virtue mm-hmm. and, and not just as like, I think people think of it as like, you know, you, you don't have sex before you're married. You just white knuckle it. You just don't. Do, and then, then you can, as opposed to thinking of like, no, there's a, there's a virtue in this that is applicable to all of life. Yeah. The ability not to make life about your pleasure, the ability to have mastery over your body, the ability to be able to control your affections and direct them toward their proper ends. Yeah. And it's like, you could almost, you could, you know, in a sense, you could stay a virgin and not grow in your character. You just, sometimes it's like, you know, it, it wasn't because you were that righteous. You just had no game. You just were weird or something like that. Ugly. You were just, you know, oh my gosh, there you go. Yeah, you were just a weird person, yeah, whatever. But anyway, I think the virtue behind it yeah. is key. And it, and, it, and it affects all other things where it's like, if you don't make your life about your pleasure, well, then you can care for a spouse when they're aging, when they're, have a disease when their body starts to fail them mm-hmm. when you yourself start to feel the effects of the hardships of life and all these types of things it's it, that that among other things is training you to be a certain type of person mm-hmm. that is hopefully helpful for for marriage it's not to say that that can't be redeemed and everyone has a past and everyone's gone through things i'm, I'm not saying that at all and in fact i think that's a harmful thing when we just go you know, because because someone could grow in a lot of character by having made those mistakes, having sinned in their past, and then really growing and knowing the grace of God, and they could have a greater kind of chastity, in a sense, a greater kind of virtue than somebody mm-hmm. who, you know, they just never, you know, they, they 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 never had sex before they were married, but they didn't form their character in any kinds of ways yeah. that were meaningful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like the the character that you come into a marriage with is the character that your marriage is going to have. It's not like there's some magic switch that gets flipped once you become married. And so if you were super promiscuous and you have no mastery over yourself at all before marriage, it's not like you can do all of that. And then once you get married, it's going to be super easy to be faithful to one person and you'll all of a sudden be able to, to you know, conjure virtue out of nothing. So like, like you said, like one of the reasons why chastity before marriage is encouraged is not just because, um, like it's not just some random rule that's imposed. It's because you, you come into marriage with a kind of character and the character that you have determines the shape and the, the character of the marriage. So if you, if you don't have the requisite virtue, it's not just going to happen and be instilled in you overnight and you're going to become an amazingly faithful husband or wife. Like once the pronouncement is made, you're going to have to like bring in the character that you came in with. And if it's a crappy character, then that's going to like manifest in crappy ways in your marriage. Um, 
like ideally marriage might do something to like sanctify you and hopefully there's going to be a kind of like purging but that's not always going to be the case and so if you just think like yeah well i'm just going to have my fun and i'll be married and then you know that's going to like totally transform my my character it's not that easy it's not like a, a switch that's going to get flipped all the bad habits are going to take a lot of undoing at some point if you want to change and if you practice objectifying people you're right you can't just flip a switch yeah. i think a lot of times people say well if it's the right person yeah what does that mean and it's like <laughs> well are you the right person you know are you you know because i think it, it's i think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that we're being shaped in a million different ways by culture oh, yeah. and media and all this mm -hmm. stuff and i think you know it's to think that you can just kind of will yourself to be like well you know i was very promiscuous and then but i'll be faithful now and it's like i don't know and i think even i don't know like some real advice when people or thinking about marrying someone's like, you know, I don't know. You want to think about have they had enough time to kind of undo some patterns or, or whatever. Nobody's yeah. beyond redemption, but it's kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's something to think about. And I think we're all to some respect affected by it. I don't know. Even, even talking about this, it's like, I, I didn't expect this to be a huge talk on like sex and Oh, I guess we were talking about make, uh, uh, hookup culture, but um, it's almost like people can't even talk about sex with like a straight face. It's just like, oh, Christian's talking about sex or whatever. And it just like, it, it makes it so weird. But I think if we can just like kind of grow up a little bit and have a conversation, you're like, yeah, like a lot of people are confused and a lot of people, you know, it, it's just, and, and I think that there's something like it, it ties into society, it ties into procreation, it ties into what a family is, what a man and a woman is, all these types of things are kind of tied to it. And maybe that's why people kind of have a hard time talking frankly about it. Um, yeah, I, it, yeah. And there's, uh, I don't know, it, in one sense, it's kind of a polarizing issue because people tend to have really, really uh, deep convictions about what's permissible and what's not permissible. And if you say one thing, then you automatically sound someone on the other, like sound like someone on the other side. And I, there's a little bit of oversensitivity, I think, but I, yeah. Hashtag normalize talking frankly about sex. Well, I want to say frankly in the right, with the appropriate reverence of kind of like honoring the marriage bed. Cause I do think sometimes I think it was popular in like churches to, for, yes. for the pastor to be like my smoking hot wife and like yeah. talk about sex so flippantly. Which is a kind of like objectification. It's a kind of objectification. Yeah. And it's, I'm like, yeah. and I'm like, this is so weird. Like, do you yeah. honestly think you seem cool right. in this moment? Like it's yeah. very odd. But I do think there's a sense in which we, we, we talk frankly, but we don't talk um, irreverently or like childishly. Like you know, in, in in these public kind of forums, and yeah. I think that because it just it's just I don't know. Like whenever I know there's like huge mega churches, they do like series on sex, and it's like ooh, and I'm like, man, like that's, <laughs> and it's like your content might be, you know, not anti hookup culture, whatever, but it's still kind of like you're like showboating. You're trying to like entice people with this thing. I don't know, but we are doing an episode on hookup culture. So maybe we're just doing the same thing. I have no idea. Yeah, but we're, we're diving into like actual ethics. There we you mentioned go. Immanuel Kant. Who does I know. that? I know. Tell me what I mega know. church does that. I mean, you really can't go wrong with that. Oh man, that was painful.
Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think at least what I was trying to point out was that it, you don't have to have the like Christian sexual ethic necessarily. I'm just trying to, it seems like there's enough shared assumptions in culture that we can all just sort of roundly denounce this practice. Like if you have liberal sensibilities and you care about objectification of, of people, like surely this is not something that we want to promote and endorse as healthy in our society. It's just, it's, it's such a denigrating and way to view other humans. You even think about it, most parents still are like, I don't want my kid right. going into that. They could be very yeah. liberal. They could be very progressive, they, whatever. And still, I would say, unfortunately, maybe less and less. But like, I still say most parents are just like, no, like, I don't want my kid involved with that. Um, and I, and I, I think about that, you know, like one day, Lord willing, if I have kids, what would I want to tell them? You know, and you can kind of be like, Oh yeah, the birds and bees talk. I'm like, no, but in a, in a, in a real sense, you're like, oh, have have we thought about what this means, what marriage means, what sex means, what the family means? Have we thought about it on a deep level ourselves so that we can model uh, how to think about it well when the kids are the appropriate age? And uh, and I wonder if how you talk about it in front of them is important. Yeah, I, I don't know that you sit down and you try to give them this like you try to let them read. Oh, maybe they should read Immanuel Kant. I don't know, but um, it's, I don't know. A lot of this I'm thinking on the fly right now because it is interesting how you're, how you're framing this because I do think, you know, it, it, it sounds um, philosophical reflections and ethical reflections on sex sounds so nerdy and like detached from real life. But I think that's to our shame because it's not just like abstractly thinking about these weird things and, but it's, if this is given by God and it's meaningful and it, it is something that's sacred and that all kind of religions mostly in societies have seen as sacred, then we do well to think about it a little more than we do. And maybe yeah. we're afraid to think about it deeply because that would reveal a lot about ourselves that we don't want to see in our society. Um, but we're not trying to be, I don't know, puritanical. No, I mean, yeah, something like that. But yeah. I, yeah. I think we do shy away from asking those difficult questions about how we view ourselves. I mean, even broader, like how we view our bodies and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And I, I think this isn't a, like culture is having these conversations now. And I, I think in the last 10 years, we've seen that for all of what the sexual revolution has done, we still have a deep sense that sex is sacred. Like there's something special about it. And this is why like Me Too was so like, it was in the public eye. This, like the idea of like using someone for sex or like sexual assault, like like we all can see that that is one of the worst things that you could do to a human being. And it's, it's not just because it's a violation of consent. Like there is sure. something deeply, deeply, deeply right. horrible and evil about using someone for sex. And it's not, it's, it's more than just a consent violation, right? It's more than just like, there are lots of things that I can do without your consent. Like I could stick my finger in your ear. That's not like, but that's like sexual assault is horrible. This is why the Me Too movement like gained the kind of like roundly denouncing popularity that it did because we all recognize that there's something there. And so for all of our talk about like, 
yeah, no, it's just like a transaction. Yeah, it's like shaking someone's hand. It's so long as two people can do it, it's the, while they're consenting. Like, I don't think we really believe that. We believe that there's something sacred and special and unique about that activity. Um, and and over the last 10 years, maybe we've, we've begun to move a little bit in that direction, even though we haven't explicitly articulated it that way. A lot of what you're saying, I think, um, I think we just got to get under the surface a little more on these topics about hookup culture beyond just like, don't do it, you know, uh, but thinking about, well, how is this shaping us? How is it, how is it shaping what we think about family, marriage, children, ourselves, all that stuff. And then I think you can get a better vision for this. And, um, and again, I don't think this is anything new. We're not like trailblazers. This is stuff in the Christian tradition. This is stuff that non-Christian philosophers and thinkers have, have talked about themselves. Do you have any good recommendations that are good authors on, on this topic? Good um, critics yeah. about this? I mean, Louise, Louise Perry, I think I, I mentioned her. She's a, she's a secular feminist writer. She writes about this stuff. Um, Mary Eberstadt, uh, Christina Summers. Notice how I'm just listing women. Yeah, there's a lot of women writing about this, a lot of feminists, a lot of just philosophers and cultural theorists who are beginning to recognize these problems and write about them. Um, yeah, so those those are some of the ones that come to mind. And Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant. He wasn't a go. woman, though. Yeah, but I mean, you still could write something I, interesting. I would not it. recommend Kant to like anyone apart from an academic who oh, really? absolutely has to. He's just so a super painful read. You just you just can't understand him? Dude, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. That's terrible. Uh, yeah, I can't resist. <laughs> Okay. I'm going to stop incentivizing that's a, that's, that's, you by yeah, laughing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this is a great conversation. And uh, hopefully you guys got something out of it. And uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, leave a comment. Leave a leave a review for us. And make sure you follow us on That'll Preach Podcast uh, on Instagram. Uh, we'll be back next week with some more content for you. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>